All right, good morning, everyone. Big round of applause for yourselves for getting here so early. My gosh, impressive. Uh, welcome, this is APS01, the knee bones connected to the peripheral and central mechanisms in knee osteoarthritis. And let's please give a very warm welcome to our esteemed faculty, the distinguished professor, Roger B. Fillingham. Give him a round of applause, thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see such a committed group early on a Friday morning. So uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, osteoarthritis today, focusing really on knee osteoarthritis. Uh, I, just to get some logistics out of the way, no disclosures. Here are the learning objectives. Uh, and. This is the first session in a four-session American Pain Society track. The APS has been delighted to work with Pain Week for several years now, uh, and we try to bring uh, a, a thematic track uh, focused on evidence-based information that hopefully will be helpful to frontline providers. The theme of this year's track is it hurts when I do that, and we're focused on musculoskeletal pain. Uh, this is the series uh, of sessions that are part of the APS track. Uh, we'll certainly welcome you at all of our sessions or any of them that interest you, uh, and we have lined up a great panel of speakers for today. Uh, and just in case you're not familiar with the American Pain Society, we are an interdisciplinary society um, we provide a, a lot of benefits. We have, uh, you know, a flagship journal. Uh, we have an annual meeting, so on and so forth. Um, and so uh, here's our website. If you'd like more information or have interest in joining, feel free to go to the website or, or find me uh, at some point in the meeting here. And so what I'd like to talk about today really are, th are three primary issues. Number one, just briefly to highlight some of the peripheral contributions in osteoarthritis-related pain, but then focus more on uh, the emerging evidence on the importance of central nervous system contributions to OA-related pain. Uh, and as part of that, I'll talk about some of our work on ethnic differences in, in OA-related pain and disability. Uh, and with any luck, uh, I'll actually bring all of this together uh, at the end. So peripheral input is indeed important in OA-related pain. Uh, this is some data from the MOST study, which is a large prospective study of people who either have knee OA or are at risk of knee OA. And what you see here are pain levels reported by patients with different radiographic grades of OA severity. Kelgren-Lorentz scores are a very widely used um, method for scoring radiographs. That is, how much damage is there to the knee joint, uh, where 0 and 1 KL scores is very little OA-related damage, all the way up to KL scores of 4, where you have uh, robust evidence of osteophytes and cartilage degeneration and oftentimes bone-on-bone -bone OA. And what you see in general 
is that the pain scores do go up as the radiographic severity goes up, right? Maybe that's not surprising. Uh, the worse your knee looks, the worse it feels in general, although uh, we certainly see many instances in which there's a discordance between how severe the OA looks on a radiograph and how much pain or disability the patient is reporting. But this shows that for groups in general, if you use a visual analog scale, there's a pretty monotonic increase in pain. If you use the WOMAC, the Western Ontario Masters University Osteoarthritis Index, you see a similar pattern, but for whatever reason, um, the pain no longer goes up when you get to the highest grade. So this suggests that peripheral input certainly is important. Okay. And it makes sense because uh, in the context of tissue damage and inflammation, uh, immune cells can release a variety of substances that can activate channels that sit on peripheral afferents, nociceptors, that initiate uh, a barrage of information coming into the central nervous system to alert us to the fact that there's something wrong. Uh, and, and this nociceptor activation can often lead to pain, right? And so not only can mechanical forces uh, that come with knee osteoarthritis activate nociceptors, much of the inflammatory soup that uh, circulates in the knee joint can both activate those nociceptors and further sensitize those nociceptors so that now our peripheral afferents uh, that are conveying information about pain are more easily activated, potentially by stimuli that previously would not have activated them. So the peripheral fibers can indeed become sensitized. Okay. Uh, and there's a very nice uh, recent review of this information from Anne-Marie Malfay's group uh, that talks about and summarizes the, the mostly animal literature using the osteoarthritis models to highlight how peripheral sensitization occurs and what some of the consequences are there. And there, there are three major uh, phenomena that emerge out of peripheral sensitization. You can get local hyperalgesia, that is, the knee becomes more sensitive to pain. Uh, so something that used to be mildly painful is now quite intensely painful. So that's local hyperalgesia in the knee. Uh, that's often accompanied by reduced thresholds for nociceptor activation, which is what I was just talking about. Nociceptors become sensitized. It's now easier to turn them on uh, and to start the barrage of information that often leads to pain. And actually, you can recruit more nociceptors in the context of peripheral sensitization. So a stimulus uh, that used to activate only a few nociceptors now might activate a robust array of nociceptors, all that information comes into the central nervous system and is perceived as increasing pain. So these peripheral factors are quite important. I don't want to downplay those things, but we've been more interested in some of the central nervous system factors that might contribute to osteoarthritis pain. And so I'll I'll focus uh, on that a bit more for the rest of the talk. Uh, there's a recent 
meta-analysis that looked at pain sensitization in people with knee osteoarthritis. That is, uh, bring people with NEOA into the laboratory, measure their pain threshold, for example, uh, and compare them to healthy controls uh, who are age and sex matched. And what you see, here's, for example, uh, pressure pain thresholds, both locally on the knee and at a remote site that's not affected by pain, right? So, uh, and this indicates how large of a difference there is between osteoarthritis patients and matched controls. A 0.8 difference would be large. So these are quite large differences, statistically speaking, between patients with osteoarthritis and healthy controls. And so what we see here is that both locally on the knee as well as in a remote area that's unaffected by the osteoarthritis, OA patients are more sensitive than matched controls. Now, as I mentioned, the local sensitization could be due to peripheral factors and peripheral sensitization. It's much harder to make that claim for why, for example, somebody with knee osteoarthritis is more sensitive on the arm. Okay, so this begins to imply that central nervous system changes have occurred, rendering the OA patient more sensitive, perhaps across their body. Uh, and I'll give you some more evidence of that soon. So this is uh, pressure pain in patients with osteoarthritis versus controls. Uh, this is the same pressure pain measure, but here we're comparing patients who have a high level of NEOA pain versus a low level of NEOA pain. And you see differences that are slightly smaller, but quite similar. That is, patients with knee osteoarthritis whose pain is severe are more sensitive than their OA counterparts who have less severe pain. Okay? And so this peripheral and central sensitization seems to be associated with the severity of OA pain. And it's not just pressure pain where you see the differences. Actually, this is OA patients versus controls. And on the knee, you don't see any differences in pain sensitivity. But at a remote site, the OA patients are quite sensitive compared to controls when you apply painful heat. Okay? So not only is the pain sensitivity increased locally and remotely, but it's also not restricted to mechanical stimuli. It applies to other stimuli as well, and I'll show you some more evidence of that. And more evidence that central factors might be important. Uh, this is, again, work uh, to Hina Niyogi in Boston from uh, the MOST study where they've followed people and they measured their pressure pain sensitivity on the wrist at baseline. And they followed them longitudinally to see uh, what outcomes occurred. Did people who originally didn't have osteoarthritis develop radiographic OA? Did their knee joint change from being non-OA to OA? Well, pressure pain sensitivity has nothing to do with that, right? But the most pain-sensitive patients were more likely to develop symptomatic OA in the future, frequent knee pain, and severe knee pain. So pressure pain threshold measured on the wrist today predicts the increased likelihood of developing OA symptoms that are more severe and more frequent. Okay. Again, it's hard to make an argument that that's peripheral sensitization because it has nothing to do with the knee. This is pressure pain measured on the wrist. And so what we begin to see is that 
Uh, as we think about osteoarthritis and other uh, musculoskeletal pain conditions, there are at least three sets of changes that we need to keep in mind. There is the peripheral sensitization that occurs, and this is a very nice paper from uh, Vanyapkarian's lab. So peripheral sensitization that we talked about, and then there's central sensitization that we'll get to, and ultimately we might even get cortical reorganization uh, so that the brain now has changed its structure, its function and its structure, most likely in response to the prolonged experience of pain, and I'll give you some evidence of that shortly. So uh, central sensitization, I suspect you've all heard of. Clifford Wolf actually coined that term many, many years ago, uh, and he's written quite extensively about it. And just sort of graphically, he's depicted it in this way. This is under normal conditions, normal sensation, no uh, sensitization here. If you activate a nociceptor, it drives a second-order neuron in the spinal cord, and you have a proportionate pain experience proportionate to the amount of nociceptor activation, okay? On the other hand, if you activate a low-threshold mechanoreceptor, this is not a nociceptor, it's an A-beta fiber designed to detect touch, uh, you activate the touch pathway. You don't activate this uh, central neuron that's conveying information about pain, right? So that all makes sense under normal conditions. He also shows this little inner neuron here, and he shows this connection here because under normal conditions, touch inhibits pain, right? The old gate control theory. Um, and so this is all intact here so that touch input can inhibit the pain signal at the spinal cord. Under conditions of central sensitization, however, now you get the same nociceptor activation potentially, but a more robust activation of the central neuron that's transmitting information to the brain. This produces an enhanced pain experience or hyperalgesia. Uh, and you see our little inhibitory inner neuron here has died back a little bit. Uh, but what's more, now when you activate this touch receptor, this low threshold mechanoreceptor, it now can activate the central neuron that drives a pain response. And this is allodynia when something that used to produce only light touch or pressure now produces pain, that's allodynia. Uh, and again, you see a loss of this inhibitory inner neuron. So this is sort of the central sensitization phenomenon. Uh, uh, Clifford Wolf wrote in this paper several years ago how this central sensitization can kind of disconnect the pain experience from the peripheral insult that seems to be driving the pain. And that's why we can uh, have a much more robust pain experience than one might predict based on the amount of tissue damage you see or the amount uh, of peripheral nociception that you see. So central sensitization uh, begins to create this discordance between peripheral damage and the actual experience of pain. Okay. Now, that was all in the spinal cord, and in recent years, there's been much more interest in understanding how the brain responds to pain. I'm sure you may have seen some uh, talks at this meeting on that. Um, and this is a nice recent review from Karen Davis's group where they describe the ascending and descending pathways activated by noxious stimuli. So we bring people into the uh, 
uh, imaging lab and we hurt them while, we, while we're studying their brain responses to those noxious stimuli. Okay? And a variety of uh, brain regions and networks are activated by noxious stimuli in that context. But it's also important to recognize that there are networks in the central nervous system, and you can think of these as either functional networks, that is, regions of the brain that tend to get activated together and communicate with each other, but there are also structural networks, that is, there are connections between brain regions structurally that promote the functional networks, uh, and many of these can become abnormal in the context of chronic pain, and, and uh, this paper talks about four of the common networks, uh, the default mode, the salience, the sensory motor network, and then they also describe white matter bundles that might connect some of these brain regions. So this paper does a nice job of describing how in the context of chronic pain, including the osteoarthritis, this brain functional organization can become disrupted. It can become abnormal uh, potentially as a result of the pain. Uh, and so we now have evidence from the original central sensitization concept that the spinal cord uh, can change its response properties to incoming input, and the brain can change how it responds to information uh, that is coming up to higher orders of the central nervous system. And in fact, this can produce structural changes in the brain. And there's now fairly robust evidence that in the context of chronic pain, uh, there appears to be atrophy in certain areas of the brain. That is, gray matter volume or cortical thickness, depending on what's being measured and where it's being measured, are often decreased in several brain regions in patients with chronic pain, including the osteoarthritis here. And this is a recent paper looking at how cortical thickness related to how long somebody had had NeoA. Uh, and in several brain regions you see here, uh, you see a, a strong correlation between the thickness of that area of the cortex and how long somebody had been having uh, NeoA. And so pain duration was associated with increased thinning of the cortex in several brain regions. So we have functional changes in the brain, we have structural changes in the brain in people with neosteoarthritis, strongly implicating the central nervous system in this condition. And we'll, we'll get to how this might relate to treatment uh, toward the end of the talk. And I'm going to give you some data from our upload study. We've been doing the upload study now for many years. Uh, it's a, a collaborative study between our group at Florida and a group at University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, and by the way, um, I've been involved in several studies with nifty acronyms, the OPERA study, the Soprano study. I run the Price Center. I run the IMPART training program and so on and so forth. So you get the picture that acronyms are important in clinical research, right? Uh, and for that reason, I've created a clinical research acronym program, uh, also known as CRAP. And so if any of you are interested in learning this crap, please <laughs> come see me at the end of the talk and we'll get you signed up. So the acronyms are important, but we'll, we'll get to some data here. 
Um, so we are assessing biopsychosocial factors related to ethnic group differences in pain and disability. There's a fair amount of evidence now that uh, especially African Americans, but also potentially Hispanic Americans, uh, when they have NEOA, they have more pain and disability compared to uh, non-Hispanic whites, and we're trying to understand some of the factors that contribute to that. Uh, and so we do a variety of things. We uh, assess a lot of clinical information, but we do a, a robust quantitative sensory testing battery to measure uh, and quantify people's pain response systems, right? So we want to look at pain sensitivity, we want to look at pain facilitation, we want to look at pain inhibition. Uh, and so I'll show you uh, some of the data from this study. And, uh, and you may recall when I was presenting that meta-analysis, some of the analyses have split the osteoarthritis group into two halves, that is those who have lower levels of OA pain. They still have OA, but the pain is not severe and then a group that has high levels of osteoarthritis pain. And so uh, in one of our analyses, we've done the same thing. So we had almost uh, 300 patients with knee osteoarthritis, um, slightly more than half, had high levels of pain defined based on a median split of the graded chronic pain scales characteristic pain score. This is an average of their reported current worst and average pain over the last six months. Okay, so this creates sort of their characteristic pain. And you see um, a, a, a higher number of African Americans here, so a, a lower proportion of non-Hispanic whites are in the high versus the low group. Uh, and then you see, of course, the pain scores are higher. The SPPB is a functional test, a short physical performance battery that asks them to do uh, standing up from a chair, walking, so on and so forth. It's a, a functional test of lower extremity performance. And then depression scores were uh, slightly higher in the high pain than in the low pain group. Okay. Uh, but when we look at the quantitative sensory testing data, here's pressure pain threshold. And the next few slides will look like this. In blue, you've got the patients with OA who have high levels of pain severity, OA with low levels of pain severity, and then uh, age match controls, and we've tested pressure pain at several body sites, the medial and lateral portions of their most painful knee, uh, the quadriceps on the same leg as their most painful knee, the trapezius muscle, and the lateral epicondyle of the arm on the same side as their most painful knee. So these are clearly remote from their osteoarthritis pain, but you see the same pattern for every measure that we took, essentially, patients with the highest levels of OA pain have the lowest pain thresholds. That is, it takes less pressure for them to experience pain. They're more pressure pain sensitive. Uh, the low OA group fall, falls somewhere intermediate and often doesn't differ much from controls, always differs from their high pain counterparts. Uh, and then controls have the highest pressure pain thresholds or lowest pressure pain sensitivity. So we're replicating findings that, that others have reported, uh, but using a more robust quantitative sensory testing uh, protocol here. So pressure pain sensitivity is greatest in people who have the worst OA pain. Uh, if we move to uh, uh, Von Frey here, a uh, nylon monofilament calibrated to bend at 300 grams, okay? 
this is not a particularly painful stimulus for healthy people. It produces mild pain. Um, but with our OA patients, the pain is more severe. And, and so what we do is we poke them once and say, how painful was that? They rate that pain. We then poke them 10 times uh, once every second, and we ask how painful that was. And the extent to which it becomes more painful with repeated poking is a measure of temporal summation of mechanical pain. That is, the central nervous system is responding more robustly to continued input uh, from a peripheral stimulus. The stimulus itself does not change in intensity, uh, but it feels worse. It hurts more. And so it's a transient measure of central sensitization, if you will. And that slope is the temporal summation slope, right? Uh, and so what you see is our high pain OA patients both report higher levels of pain even on the first poke but they have a much steeper slope. That is, they summate more. They facilitate that mechanical pain more. And you see that whether we're poking them on the knee or we're poking them on the hand, which, of course, is unaffected by pain. Okay. Uh, and this is another form of temporal summation. This is repeated heat stimuli where we, in this instance, uh, this is a 48-degree stimulus, very brief stimulus, less than a second. We repeat it every two and a half seconds the stimulus itself stays the same, but it hurts more as we keep stimulating you, okay? Uh, and you see that slope there is much steeper for our high-pain patients. Uh, not only do they provide higher ratings to the first heat stimulus, but as we keep stimulating them, they show more summation. So both mechanical and heat temporal summation is more robust in the high-pain OA group. Uh, and some interesting data, these are not our data, these come from a group at Hopkins uh, where uh, they split their OA sample slightly differently than we did. They still had high pain and low pain, but they also took into account how bad their radiographs were. So a low Kelgren-Lawrence score would mean a low grade of NeoA, that is the radiograph says your NeoA shouldn't be that bad. Uh, and a high Kelgren-Lawrence score, of course, means more severe radiographic OA. And so if you have high pain but a low radiographic score, there's that discordance we're talking about where our radiograph would say, oh, you shouldn't have much pain, but the patient's reporting high levels of pain. Well, that group was more pain sensitive to every pain stimulus they tried with them. Mechanical pain on the finger, uh, thermal pain on the forearm, trapezius or shoulder pressure pain threshold, uh, and the cold presser task where they immerse their hand in ice cold water. So across the board, the group that has high pain but low radiographic evidence of OA was the most pain sensitive. Again, these quantitative sensory testing data are further implicating uh, the central nervous system in uh, these patients with knee osteoarthritis, especially high knee pain severity. Now, I've shown you lots of different quantitative sensory tests, right? We got heat pain, we got pressure pain, we got uh, poking with a nylon monofilament and so on and so forth. Um, and we wondered how all of these things hung together, okay? And so Josue Cardoso, who works with our group, did a, a cluster analysis. This is saying, okay, we've got five different sets of pain tests here. We got a cold pain test, heat pain, 
temporal summation of heat pain, pressure pain, and temporal summation of the nylon monofilament, right? So these are the sort of five different tests we have. Uh, and what we see is there's this one group that seems to be generally more sensitive to most tests, but particularly they're sensitive to heat pain and, and heat temporal summation. That's their profile. Uh, and then we have this other group that was very sensitive to mechanical temporal summation. When we kept poking them, it hurt more and more, right? And then we have some other groups that had different profiles, but these two groups are sort of the most interesting. And so we went on to look at their clinical pain, and we see that actually it's the group of patients that report more and more po pain as we continue to poke them. Those are the ones who have the most clinical pain, right? Uh, and so this is on the WOMAC. Uh, this is on the graded chronic pain scale. You also see some signal that the high heat sensitivity group also has slightly higher pain. But the most clinical pain was uh, emerged in this group that has high mechanical temporal summation. That is, for whatever reason, uh, they are particularly responsive to repeated input from a mechanical stimulus. Their central nervous system is too good at facilitating that kind of pain, okay? The other thing we've been interested in more recently is the potential that neo-A pain might have some neuropathic qualities. Some previous investigators have reported that some proportion of patients with neo-A uh, on instruments that assess neuropathic pain report that their pain has neuropathic features, okay? Now, we don't know whether it's truly neuropathic because we don't have a me measure of nerve damage or nerve function, right? And so you have to technically show that to show that somebody has neuropathic pain. But using the pain detect to, to assess neuropathic pain, we can at least say they're describing their pain like people with neuropathic pain describe their own pain, okay? Uh, and so we studied this in our osteoarthritis sample, uh, and we ended up with about 17% of our OA patients reporting pain that sounds neuropathic. Uh, those patients who are reporting a neuropathic-like pain also report substantially more severe pain on other pain measures, uh, like the graded chronic pain scale, both pain intensity and pain interference, and this is the WOMAC pain score. Uh, so pain that's described as neuropathic is also more severe on traditional pain measures, but they show different responses on a few quantitative sensory tests. Uh, I, I told you about temporal summation of heat pain, right? We keep stimulating you with this repeated painful heat stimulus, and then we stop, uh, and we wait. 15 seconds, and we say, well, how painful is it now, right? The healthy response would be it doesn't hurt anymore because you're not providing me any stimulation. But if either, and we don't know which this is, if either you're unable to inhibit and turn off that pain signal or you're still facilitating uh, pain in your central nervous system, you can have a heat pain after sensation, okay? And what we see is that our neuropathic pain group reports substantially more after sensation 15 seconds after we've stopped stimulating them. And they, they experience that at all the temperatures that we uh, provided for stimulation. Uh, the neuropathic pain group also had more robust mechanical temporal summation of pain. This is not on the knee. This is on the hand. Okay? 
This is on the arm. So remote from their site of pain, they're showing signs of increased pain facilitation uh, in these patients who describe their clinical pain as neuropathic. Okay? So the quantitative sensory testing data, uh, the neuropathic pain descriptions seem to implicate the central nervous system uh, in some of the pain that people with osteoarthritis are experiencing. And, and I want to switch gears a bit and talk about racial and ethnic differences in OA pain because that's why we started the upload study was to study these things. Uh, and ethnic differences in pain, uh, it, it's a complex topic actually because if you just do a study of pain prevalence in the general population, uh, Hannah Grohl Prokopchik did this recently in a large national study, and there really aren't ethnic differences in the prevalence of pain, right? If you just ask a question uh, like, are you often troubled with pain, uh, and then you qualify it with severity of the pain, and moderate or severe pain would be chronic pain, relatively similar proportions of African Americans, Hispanics, and non-Hispanic whites report chronic pain, all right? So if you looked at that, you might conclude, well, there aren't really ethnic differences in pain. But pain prevalence is not a particularly uh, nuanced measure, if you will, right? Uh, you can have a yes and have very mild pain, or you can have a yes and have completely disabling pain. So when you then look at the severity of the pain, you see that similar proportions report mild pain, Whites are more likely to report moderate pain, and the minority patients uh, or members of the population are more likely to report severe pain. So when pain is present in African Americans and in Hispanics, uh, the pain tends to be more severe. Okay? So this is a common finding in the ethnic differences literature. Not that pain is always more frequent in the minority groups, but when pain is there, uh, it is often more severe and more disabling. And so we've been interested in this. Uh, if you look, and that was general chronic pain. This is doctor-diagnosed OA. Um, and this is, again, a large population-based study. Uh, no evidence that blacks or Hispanics or American Indians have higher rates of doctor-diagnosed OA, um, but they do have more severe pain uh, in general. So... Here are data from our upload study where we had 120-odd uh, non-Hispanic whites and 160-odd African-Americans with knee osteoarthritis. Uh, here's the graded chronic pain scale and the WOMAC pain score, and we see that our African-American uh, participants are reporting higher levels of pain on both measures. Now, depending on what you control for, these differences can become non-significant. When you control for all of these things, age, body mass index, and socio-demographic uh, slash economic factors, some of these differences go away, although the graded chronic pain scale pain intensity remains significant. Okay? So in general, these findings support what's been reported in the literature. African Americans report higher levels of pain and disability when they have osteoarthritis. Uh, and we actually uh, have a meta-analysis that's under review right now. Uh, we, we hope it to be published in the near future. And we looked at the literature, Ivan Avon and our group did this work, um, to understand uh, of all these studies that have been done comparing African Americans and non-Hispanic whites, what are the overall findings? And, and in general, the findings are that there is a moderate 
difference between African Americans, and when I say moderate, I mean the statistical size of the effect uh, is moderate. So it's not negligible, but it's certainly not the only important factor that's driving pain. But uh, there is consistent evidence that African Americans report higher levels of pain, both on the WOMAC and on other pain scales, and they report uh, higher levels of disability or lower levels of function on self-report measures. And then when you do functional performance, uh, African Americans have lower levels of functional performance when they have NEOA. So the literature uh, supports these ethnic group differences. Uh, and frankly, I was surprised by this. Brian Ahn, who worked in our lab for a bit, did a study with uh, Asian Americans compared to non-Hispanic whites with neosteoarthritis. Uh, and found that Asian Americans reported higher levels of pain uh, on the graded chronic pain scale. It was particularly female Asian Americans, uh, but on the WOMAC, it was, or on the pain interference score, it was males and females. So it's not just African Americans who report higher levels of pain. And this study, we found a difference between, uh, African, uh, between Asian Americans and, and non-Hispanic whites. Uh, and so other than me getting a chance to tell you about some of our research, what does this have to do with central sensitization? That's what I'm supposed to be talking about here. Uh, well, we think that at least part of what contributes to ethnic group differences in OA-related pain and disability is driven by altered pain processing. And we think what happens is there are different environmental exposures for African Americans uh, in, in this country including economic disadvantage, discrimination, psychosocial stress, uh, and we do measure these things. Um, and we also think this, these exposures produce cumulative effects, uh, and this can drive differences in psychosocial processes, both on the risk and on the resilient side, can drive differences in biological processes. Some of this can be further compounded by sleep impairment, and we're collecting data on sleep in our sample as well. All of this conspires together to drive changes in the central nervous system that render our African-American participants more sensitive to painful input. Okay? So this is our model that drives our, our upload study. Uh, our evidence tends to support the involvement of these central nervous system factors. These are many different quantitative sensory tests, heat pain threshold and tolerance on the arm and knee, um, pressure pain threshold at all the sites I told you about before. Uh, this graphic depicts sensitivity. The mean for the whole sample has been set to zero. These are Z-scores. Uh, as the bars go up, it indicates higher threshold, higher tolerance, which means lower pain sensitivity. As the bars go down, lower threshold, lower tolerance, higher pain sensitivity. And you see that for African Americans, the bars go down, indicating lower, uh, lower threshold and tolerance or higher sensitivity compared to non-Hispanic whites. It doesn't seem to matter how or where we hurt them. This pattern is relatively similar across all of the tests we do at all of the sites where we test them. Uh, if we look at our temporal summation of heat pain, we see our African-American sample not only reports higher pain, but they have this steeper slope. They're better at facilitating pain, this transient sensitization that emerges with repeated heat stimuli is more robust in our African-American sample, and we see the same pattern even more impressively for our heat, our mechanical temporal summation. So as we continue to poke, 
whether it's on the hand or on the affected knee, our African Americans are summating more. They're facilitating that pain uh, more impressively. Uh, I told you about the small Asian American study that we had done, and, and we see a, a similar pattern here. These are the clinical data I've already showed you, but here's heat pain threshold and tolerance. Our Asian Americans were much more sensitive to heat pain as well as temporal summation of both heat and mechanical pain. So the ethnic differences that we've observed are associated with what look like changes in how the central nervous system is processing painful stimuli. And so we're beginning to believe that, that there is a disruption of pain modulatory balance. I think under healthy conditions, David Yarnitsky from Israel has written about this, under healthy conditions, we all have uh, a healthy pain modulatory balance, which means we can detect pain when we need to, but we can inhibit pain when we need to. And so we have this balance between facilitation and inhibition that, uh, allows us to experience pain in proportion to the uh, offending stimulus. However, under certain conditions, and this seems to be true in patients with more severe NEOA, uh, that is more severe pain, as well as in our African-American sample, we get better at facilitating pain and we get worse at inhibiting pain, right? So there's a pain modulatory imbalance now that tilts in the direction of experiencing higher levels of pain and not being able to inhibit pain uh, in a healthy manner. Uh, and, and this has some implications for treatment. Dan Claw has written about this. So when you look at uh, facilitation of pain transmission, they think about uh, different sets of drugs uh, because different mechanisms may drive this facilitation. On the other hand, if you have a disruption of pain inhibition, that is, if your problem is, it's not that you facilitate pain, you just can't inhibit pain, well, you need different systems to be altered by medications or non-medical therapies. Uh, and so I think this pain modulatory balance is something we need to consider as we're thinking about treatment. So how does any of this central nervous system stuff relate to treatment? Uh, this is a study done by Irene Tracy's group at Oxford um, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, and what they showed is that in patients with HIPOA, um, there was lower gray matter volume in HIPOA patients than in healthy controls. But after arthroplasty, which relieved the HIPOA pain, the thalamic gray matter volume normalized. Okay. So their thalamus grew, the volume of the thalamus increased once the pain was removed, okay? Uh, and this actually was recently replicated uh, in patients with NEOA um, by, by another group where, again, uh, at baseline, there was lower gray matter volume in patients with NEOA compared to controls, but after successful total knee replacement, Several of the regions showed increases in gray matter volume um, post-operatively. Okay. Yes? So uh, I believe the Tracy follow-up was nine months or something like that. So this is on the order of months to a year. I, I don't remember the exact follow-up period, but it takes some time. Uh, now, I... 
this would be a hard study to do. I haven't seen anybody sort of do serial imaging to see when the normalization starts to occur, but we're talking on the order of months out to a year here. Mm -hmm. uh, and this study, this recent NEOA study, also showed um, concurrent normalization of QST responses. So preoperatively, the NEOA patients had more robust temporal summation uh, of heat pain, and post-op, that was normalized. Uh, and condition pain modulation, which is our best measure of pain inhibition in the laboratory, that is the extent to which pain uh, that we apply at one site inhibits pain that we apply at another site, uh, that tests your pain inhibitory capacity. <clears throat> this pain inhibition was smaller preoperatively in the NEOA patients, and it became more robust postoperatively. So this is evidence that after you remove uh, the source of clinical pain in patients with NEOA, their brains normalize and their pain modulatory balance normalizes. They become less likely to facilitate pain and more likely to inhibit pain. So uh, these are supporting the fact that the central nervous system is importantly involved in the pain that these folks are experiencing. Uh, and so these central measures could be important markers of treatment outcome. That is, have we rendered people healthy now from a pain processing perspective? They might also predict response to treatment. This is data uh, from Rob Edwards and others at Harvard, and they show that in a small sample of NEOA patients, uh, a topical non-steroidal uh, was more uh, effective in patients who had healthy pain inhibition. Right? Uh, and so if you have healthy pain inhibition and you're able to reduce the peripheral input that's driving your pain, you tend to respond better to that treatment than people whose pain inhibitory capacity was not healthy uh, at baseline. Uh, and so this tells us that the brain might indeed be a target for treatment, right? Not only might the brain tell us who's going to respond to treatment, we might say, well, if the central nervous system is so importantly involved in NEOA pain, let's treat the central nervous system rather than the knee. Uh, and so Brian Ahn, who I mentioned earlier, did a nice little pilot study of transcranial direct current stimulation that you may be familiar with. It's, it's direct current stimulation with uh, electrodes put on the head, um, and it's getting a lot of interest now. And he studied this in patients with knee osteoarthritis just five days of TDCS, five days of stimulation, 20 minutes each day, and then he followed them out for three weeks, and, he, and there's a sham uh, procedure uh, that's the comparison group. So this was placebo-controlled, and so what you see is that the active TDCS group had much more robust decreases in their clinical pain that lasted for at least three weeks. We don't know how much longer it would have lasted because we didn't collect additional data. So this suggests that not only is the brain a marker of some problems that have emerged in patients with OA, but it may also be a target for effective treatments that we might be able to provide patients. So just to briefly summarize, peripheral and central sensitization are both very important uh, in the osteoarthritis pain. Uh, we've shown and others uh, have shown that there are altered QST profiles and alterations in brain structure and function further implicating the central nervous system. Uh, we believe that these same mechanisms are contributing to some of the ethnic differences that we see. 
uh, this sensitization might predict treatment outcome and might be a target for effective treatment of NEOA. And I do want to acknowledge uh, the many people I've had the pleasure of collaborating with on this work and certainly uh, acknowledge the funding agencies who have supported us. And I will thank you for your attention.